0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with Ron Rash, author of The Caretaker. It is 1951. The close-knit community of Blowing Rock, North Carolina, does not welcome those who are different. Jacob Hampton's wealthy parents disinherited him when he married Naomi, an uneducated hotel maid from out of town. They had bigger plans for him. Now Jacob has been called up to fight in Korea, leaving a pregnant Naomi behind. The only person he can entrust to take care of her is his lifelong friend, Blackburn Gant. The titular caretaker, tending the local cemetery alone, is an outsider too, his appearance irrevocably altered by childhood disease. Slowly, the two outcasts grow closer, their friendship blooming under small acts of kindness. Then, as they await news of Jacob's return, A terrible, shattering act of deception derails all their lives. Ron Rash is a poet, novelist, writer of short stories, and an educator, holding the Paris professorship in Appalachian Cultural Studies at Western Carolina University, teaching poetry and fiction. The Caretaker is his eighth novel, and he has produced four collections of poetry and numerous volumes and contributions of short stories, as well as a children's book. Nominated for and winner of many awards across his career, he's been twice a finalist for a Penn Faulkner Award. The Caretaker is a remarkable book. It's one of my favourites of the year. I was lucky enough to discuss the book with Ron. We began our conversation with a reading of an excerpt where Blackburn recalls an instance from his childhood. Here's Ron Rash, reading from The Caretaker. When Blackburn was
1: 14... He and his father worked side by side, hoeing, baling, feeding, mucking. They always something more a farm demanded. During a full day's work, they would exchange a handful of words. His father had never been much for talking or smiling, for that matter. If Blackburn spilled milk or missed weeds, his father's words were few but severe. When the job was well done, the most Blackburn hoped for was a nod including on a blistering August Saturday after the two of them alone harvested half an acre of cabbage. Cutting the heads from the cobby stalks was work enough, but carrying the burlap sacks from the bottom land up to the shed was even harder. On those summer Saturdays, his father was left after supper to sit with men who gathered at Hampton's store. When he returned, he always brought Blackburn and his sister a bottle of soda pop. Blackburn never asked to go with him, never thought to ask. But on that August Saturday, supper eaten, he fetched his hat and a lantern and looked at Blackburn. You coming or not? He said, walking out the door without waiting for a response. His father had long legs and Blackburn trailed behind him. But as the store came into sight, his stride shortened until they walked together. Once there, his father stopped took a nickel from a change purse and held it out. You ain't going to get it for me, Blackburn asked. His father shook his head. On the porch, the men Blackburn passed barely acknowledged him, though all spoke or nodded to his father. Inside, Mrs. Hampton was behind the counter. His father tipped his hat before turning to the metal drink box. Blackburn watched him lift the lid, peer at the metal caps before shoving his hand into the gray slush, fetching out a green bottle with seven up on its side. After freeing the cap, his father took a swallow as if testing the drink's quality, then paid and went outside. Blackburn read the cap names. Some he'd never tasted cheer wine, Nihai, Yuhu. Each time he pulled a bottle from the slush, the surrounding caps swayed like fishing bobbers. He settled on a cheer wine, gave Mrs. Hampton a nickel, and went out. His father leaned against the porch rail. The chairs were filled, so several men perched beside his father on the railing. Others sat on the steps, leaving a gap for customers to pass. Blackburn went down the steps. Wooden drink crates were stacked beside the porch, and Blackburn turned one on its side and sat. The men spoke of crops and weather, told a few jokes and tall tales. At 8 o'clock, Mrs. Hampton turned off the lights and locked the door, but the men lingered. The darkness made the men quieter, often attentive to a single voice. On the third Saturday night, a new man joined the regulars. As Blackburn paused, he elbowed the fellow beside him, spoke, and then laughed. His father told Blackburn to go on inside. But through the screen door, he heard him clearly. That's my son, and he's already twice the man you'll ever be. If you say another word to who or about him, I swear before God, one or the both of us will end up in a hospital or a casket. You understand. Stranger answered, yes, sir. His father had come into the store then, got his seven up, but waited until Blackburn bought his drink. They went back out together. The chairs of the stranger and the man who sat beside him were empty. Which one do you want? His father had asked.
0: Thank you, Ron. It's one of my favorite passages from the book. So it's a real treat to hear you read the text yourself. Perhaps to ground our listeners in a further understanding of the book, particularly the physical and temporal setting, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about setting the work in the early 1950s in the shadow of the Korean War?
1: That war has in many ways been the forgotten war. Uh, It's interesting, World War II, uh, everyone knows about Vietnam as well. But uh, in the United States, and I, I suspect in other countries where uh, soldiers were involved, it tends to be a war that that is kind of not emphasized. And I had older relative, particularly one who was a Marine, and he was in some of the fiercest fighting, and that was memorable for me. Knowing his story, uh, I mean, it, it was interesting. He he grew up in the North Carolina mountains, but he he was he always talked about how cold it was. And one time he, he said something that just has stayed with me over decades. He, he was talking about the fighting. And instead of saying the intensity of it, he said, then the fighting got thick. And I just thought that used that word thick. Uh, well, he was talking about hand to hand. But as I got deeper into the novel, the plot by the family to, to uh, get rid of the daughter-in-law could not have happened at a later time. I think that's one part of it.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. It hadn't crossed my mind, but that makes so much sense.
1: But the other thing that became more and more interesting to me as I got deeper into the book was that this was probably one of the last times where almost all human interaction would be face to face.
0: Yeah, of course, that too.
1: Unlike what we're doing right now. And so it it struck me how how much more dramatic it is. But also just how 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 different that is, and, and I just thought it was really interesting to to think about uh, as opposed to now. Uh, I'm I'm not saying one is better than the other. I think sometimes it's probably good that we have screens between each other. But also it allows I think a certain kind of uh, nastiness that could not be done if people were face to face. So I thought that was you know as far as the time period was uh, inherently more dramatic and interesting just interesting juxtaposing it with the present
0: it is interesting in that regard and by you speaking to that i'm made much more aware of the manner in which these people communicate with one another particularly in that excerpt that you read for us because it's not as if these people are necessarily kind to one another in a way that we would understand kindness today particularly as mediated by technology for instance and that story that you touched on, that one of the family trying to rid themselves of their daughter-in-law, I understand that this story is somewhat based on real events that you became aware of from a long time ago?
1: Yes. Uh, sometimes I tell people that in some ways, this is my most recent novel, but in some ways it's also my oldest because uh, about 35 years ago, a friend of mine told me a story, true story, about a... Uh, a couple, a young man from a very prominent family in a small town in the, in the Carolinas who had eloped. He was 19, she was 16, and she was from a family that was much lower economically, uh, a poor family, farm family. His parents were outraged about the elopement, and after a few months, he was actually uh, drafted into fighting and went to Europe to fight in World War II. And while he was gone, the parents actually had uh, the daughter-in-law murdered, told him that she had died of natural causes. And as is the way in a rural community, small town, there were some people who knew the truth. And that's where, for me, the story was kind of, if I were a historian, I would have been very up- upset because that's all my friend knew about. It. He did not even know if the uh, young man ever realized it himself. But for novelists, I'll take care of the rest of the way.
0: Mm. And you most certainly have. There's quite an ingenious neatness to your setting in motion of this narrative. And I should say for our listeners that this is not a spoiler for this story per se, because in as much as this situation does set things in motion, as the title of the work suggests, The Caretaker, really this story is much more about another man, this titular Blackburn. Can I ask about the decision to focus the story around him, about his life and his choices? Because in the hands of another writer, this could have ended up a murder mystery, for instance, with that kind of narrative conceit, the family, the wife, etc. But this is definitely not that story. It's not what I thought it could have been, and it is so much more profound because of this.
1: Well, that's what's always been, in a way, uh, disconcerting for me as a writer is that I I tend to wonder. I, I, and, and I think with this novel, I had the story and in a way that it was almost as if it had put me on a particular track. I think what you're saying, almost like a traditional thriller. But the novel really wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. It just didn't seem to have the complexity I wanted. And actually, in the early drafts, Blackburn wasn't even a character. And then as I got deeper into the drafts, and I just couldn't find what made this, this story work. I finally kind of came upon him. I realized that the caretaker in a cemetery would have to play some role. And uh, certainly, once I got, got into that, it, it just became a book about him. One of the hopes I had in the novel was that that becomes gradually more clear because I do have a a number of different points of view, but as you get deeper into the book, uh, we begin to really focus on him, and and he becomes uh, definitely, for me, I I hope the other stories and the other characters are interesting, but I think we really kind of go to a deeper level with him.
0: Yeah, we certainly do, but those other characters, the points of view that you mentioned, they help to build up the community of this small town into a very vivid place, and I think very interesting what I am left with most strongly is particularly a sense of how they communicate affection and love.
1: I would agree. And, and I would also add, I think that in a way, this is a book almost purely about men, particularly, who would never use the word love, but they show it in their actions.
0: Yeah, I hope it's not a stretch to consider that given your own fluency in communicating these ideas... Perhaps, within your own background, this is something that you'd be familiar with, if not personally, then within the community well yeah,
1: I'm very familiar with it. Uh, I grew up in a very small town, rural area rural rural county. My family's lived in the North Carolina mountains for about two hundred and fifty years, which is uh, pretty much in the same area uh, but both my mother and my father's family, so I, I certainly feel like you know I have a sense of that, but also just a sense of how in rural communities, small towns, there, there is a very interesting uh, class dynamic, and certainly in this novel, I think the Hampton family—they are the people who are the, the wealthiest. They own a, a sawmill, a couple of stores, but I, you know, I didn't want them just to be stereotypical people who control. They—they've done a lot of good. I mean, there's a sense, in some ways, maybe of noblesse oblige, but but I think it's more just trying to to be decent people. For me, uh, that that's when the story gets interesting because uh, these people that in some ways we might admire, uh, suddenly their sense of control, I think, turns very dark in, in the book. But um, yeah, the people in the community uh, do feel a certain obligation to them and, and at, at the same time, a certain fear. There, there is a certain power they can exert on the people to fall into disfavor.
0: Definitely. The way that the man who administers the town's telegrams, a vital piece of infrastructure, behaves with that fealty towards the Hamptons is almost as if he is a vassal acting out of fear, but the way that Jacob's father watches over him and comforts him in his moments of torment once he's back home is very touching and is revealing of that depth of character. At a certain point, The narrative splits off into two seemingly parallel realities, a creative decision I found really compelling, as I was so curious to know if or how they would be negotiated. I imagine this must have been quite technically demanding. What was the writing process like once you decided this fork in the road was going to occur?
1: I love a lot of work <laughs> and a lot of lost pages. I mean, I you know the book is two uh, hundred sixty something pages, but I, I wrote over a thousand pages, and 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 a lot of it was really kind of what you're talking about, trying to make this synthesis uh, as much as I could make it seamless. But uh, it, there was a lot of really having to cut back uh, certain scenes, trying to keep it as concise as possible. And uh, I think it was just a lot of false turns and 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 just slow, slow to where it felt right, felt unified, and that was kind of the part of it. And I think in some ways it was probably the, the most carefully structured book I've ever written.
0: Yes, when I read the book for the second time through, I found that the structural integrity struck me as so vital, but so hidden. It's this chassis undergirding what one takes in as the reader, but it never becomes a frustrating logical device or anything like that you're definitely in control do you think perhaps this comes from fluency and connection to these places to this world
1: certainly uh, because of my family's long history in the region that that certainly uh, i think i'm always aware of the sense of generations of my family being up here you know, I have some relatives who have done some pretty good archival work. And, and so I have a sense of going back into the 1700s, of where these people live, some some aspects of their lives. But I'm fascinated with the region. I'm fascinated particularly, and, and I think this is where I feel a kinship to a number of uh, Australian writers, the connection between landscape and the characters. Actually, in my third novel, uh, The World Made Straight, I have a character say, "'Landscape is destiny.'" And I, I love that sense of the landscape, uh, what kind of impact it has on characters. In my particular region, it's because it's a mountainous region, I found two things really interesting that seemed to happen. An intense sense of place and wanting to be in this place and almost feeling as if the mountains are almost womb-like, uh, protective, but they're, they're keeping outside forces at bay. Very nurturing in some ways, and yet at the same time, the sense of the mountains, because traditionally people who who farm uh, are going to be in the low-lying parts, a sense of the mountains being oppressive, eons of existence against such fleeting human lives, and a kind of fatalism. Uh, and sense of uh, smallness. So those kind of things, I think, to me, are are fascinating. And and so that, the landscape always plays a huge part in my work, uh, its impact on the characters, and, and I think you sense that
0: in this book as well. I really do, personally. And I can see why you would point to Australian authors, Tim Winton's sense of place, landscape, and the effect on character that you speak to, for instance. I have just one more thing to ask you about and that is about Blackburn. He seems to me to be a character who you have poured a lot of consideration and thought into, and he seems to embody a lot of those attributes of the landscape you've just been speaking to. If you could, what would you ideally like the reader to take away from Blackburn?
1: Well, I, I think this ultimately is a book about love, or you know, sometimes what is justified as an act of love, certainly, uh, with the parents. But uh, yeah, Blackburn, in in many ways, it's interesting. I think writers later in their lives, or at least I've I've, I've noticed this with some of the writers I particularly admire, Uh, William Faulkner, for instance, uh, as they get toward the end of their careers, I think sometimes want to – Give a little bit of hope to the readers. <laughs> Shakespeare with *The Tempest*, uh, a late career play that's so unlike *Lear*. I mean, it's a it's a play about hope. And uh, Faulkner's last book, *The Reavers, is is a book that's that in many ways hopeful, light lighter. As as I was working on this book, the uh, United States has been so stratified. I mean, it's it, we're just constantly looking, and I, I don't think it's just the United States. It seems like the whole world right now is just uh, there's a sense of just everyone looking for the worst in each other. And and I kind of wanted to have a character who would embody, kind of remind us that other side of what human beings can be. I mean, not to sentimentalize him, I, and I hope I don't. I mean, he has his flaws. But I think uh, in his actions, he really embodies much of what w- we can admire in people. And so I think as I worked on the book, I, I just, you know, he's he's going to have his temptations, but i think uh he has to be tested and i think that's that that will um, you know in a sense to me that that became the really interesting part one thing that kind of ties into this though is that i wanted to write i've always wanted to write a novel about my grandparents farm I set a novel on the farm and this was my first opportunity to do that the landscape is that farm, but when I was growing up as a child, there is a cemetery above our the farmland uh, and a church. As a child, I would be, uh, after a, a storm, heavy wind, uh, some of the wreaths or flowers would be blown onto our land, onto the cow pasture. and And as a child, I'd be sent up there, and I would not know which grave to put them on, but I was taught to, you know, put the reef actually back through the barbed wire fence onto the cemetery side, do it very respectfully. And actually I had a relative who had been killed in World War II fighting. And I think that ties into the novel with Jacob. I think you can see the connection there. You know, in a sense Blackburn came out of that landscape as a as a caretaker, I thought that transition from being a caretaker of the dead as he is in the cemetery, to the living would, in a sense, open him up and open up the possibilities of his life that uh, had not been there before.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I am touched by Blackburn, just as I was by this book, Ron. I'm very grateful for your time and also for the opportunity to read The Caretaker. Thank you very, very much for speaking with me, Ron.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a good interview. And thank you, Nico.
0: the caretaker will be available via all reading stores from january 3rd and from our website we'll find all kinds of other recommendations great books music film and tv you can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter the readings monthly the readings podcast is produced by me Nico calligan the show's music is by tom hoskins thank you for listening